Take your Bible, if you would. We start this weekend a new series, a journey through uh, that final week of Jesus' life as we are moving toward uh, Easter. Turn with me to John chapter 12. Uh, And so we're going to look at some of the key events in the life of Christ in that final week here on on earth before his uh, crucifixion. And of course, we'll talk about the resurrection on Easter Sunday and all that. So uh, it's so important, this final week of Jesus' life, if you think about the three and a half years that the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the events of the life of Christ, that they spent more time on this final week than, uh, than others, of course. So Matthew and Mark took about uh, spent about one third of the entire uh, their entire books of where they're writing about the life of Christ. About a third of it devoted to this final week. Um, Luke takes about twenty five percent of uh, all of his writing focused on this final week, and John that we're going to look at today takes a full one half of what he wrote about the life of Christ is spent focused on this final week. Just a reminder of how important it is. And we're going to be looking over the next few weeks some of those key events in the life of Jesus. It's been called this final week the passion of Christ. Now that word passion comes from a Latin word uh, which means to suffer, to bear, to endure. So, you know, in our, in our culture, we've, we have a different meaning for passion, of course. We define it, you know, when you're passionate about something, that it, it's indicative of having strong emotions about something. It, it, a lot of times it's tied to love or desire, those kind of things. But that's not what originally, when you think of the passion of Christ, what that means. Jesus' sacrifice for humanity was not the result, if you think about the passion of Christ, not the result of a strong emotion. It wasn't, it wasn't that in a fit of, of, of passion and emotion that Jesus makes the decision to die on a cross for us. That's not what was going on. It wasn't a split-second decision. The passion of Christ, the suffering of Christ, was the calculated culminating week of suffering that began at the very beginning of time in the garden in chapter 3 following the, the, the sin of Adam and Eve when God said of, uh, of what Jesus would one day do, he said in Genesis 3.15, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Looking forward or, or talking about what would one day happen on the cross. So this final week of Jesus' life is Jesus leading his, these, these events that lead up to the cross, lead up to the resurrection. It is with, as you think about what Jesus is doing, he, he's fulfilling the settled purpose that he has been given by God the Father. He's mover, moving ever closer with ever, every event to this time of his suffering on the cross, the passion of the cross. Jesus came with a purpose. Scripture talks about that purpose, that he came to seek and save the lost, that he came, the purpose being to give his life as a ransom for many, Scripture tells us. So the passion of Jesus is the story of, again, his settled purpose moving toward God's, the plan, the ultimate plan where he would give his life on the cross. He would suffer for our sins. He would bear our sins. He would endure the tragedy of the cross, the suffering, the torture of the cross for us. Again, this relentless pursuit of following the will, following the desire of the Father, the plan of the Father that ultimately ends with Jesus on the cross. That is the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. 
And hopefully, as we look at the events that lead up to that moment of him on the cross and the resurrection, hopefully we will more passionately fall in love with him as we learn about his suffering, his passion for us. So let's start here in chapter 12 of the book of John. Let me just give us some context as you're as you're thinking about that, this story takes place in a little town called Bethany. It's outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is the place where Jesus crucified. Uh, and just, again, for context, in chapter 11, so just right before this, Jesus has healed Lazarus or raised Lazarus from the dead. What a miracle. Kind of an exclamation point on his public ministry that he raises someone from the dead. It's, it's the exclamation point that, yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, he is the Christ. He is the Son of, of God. An amazing capstone miracle raising someone from the dead. Scripture tells us in chapter 11, verse 45, that many saw this miracle and many people began to believe that he was the Messiah. The Jewish leadership, the chief priests, the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and began to discuss what they should do as a result of the miracle of Lazarus and all these people coming and believing that he's the Messiah. They get a little antsy, they get a little nervous. And so we see the cliff notes of the meeting of all the religious leaders in chapter 11, starting with verse 45. I encourage you later to go read it. It's very interesting to add, again, to the context so we understand what's happening in chapter 12. It's important to understand that when the Romans, and they had conquered Israel, they had conquered the Jews, and what the Romans would do is they would leave people in power as long as those people, you know, of the conquered nation, they would leave some people in power, some leaders in power, as long as they kept the peace, and two, they made sure that Rome got their tax money. And so these religious leaders are afraid that what, what's going to happen if people begin to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So this group of scribes and Pharisees, they didn't want to lo- lose the power that they had been given by Rome, and so they're fighting for it. Listen to what they talk about in John chapter 11, verse 48. If we let him go on, talking about Jesus, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We have... The conclusion of their deliberations, it's like they were in a meeting. And so at the end of the meeting that they were in, they come to a conclusion. Here's the action item of the meeting. It was, it was uh, the motion was made, a motion was seconded, they had some discussion, they all voted, and here's the result of the, 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 the talking points, that here's what we're going to do as a result, verse 53. So from that day on, they'd made plans to put him to death. That's what they decided to do. That's the end of chapter 11. And now, starting in chapter 12, this is what the word of the Lord says. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. So let's get some of the context right. So so this is Saturday. And so Friday, just six days from now, is when Jesus would be on the cross. He would die on a cross. And so this is the Saturday before the Friday. And they're having, uh, in this little town of Bethany, a little, a little get-together. Lazarus is there. You kind of understand who's on the guest list. We have Lazarus is there. Some of the disciples are there. Jesus is there. You know, he's the, you know Lazarus is the guy that had been raised from the dead. His sisters are there, Mary and, uh, and Martha. Now, This story we find not only in John's gospel, but we also find it in Matthew and Mark's gospel. 
And so I'll just kind of throw in some of the little details that John might have left out that, that just help kind of round out the story. And one of the little details that Matthew and Mark include that John didn't is another guest at the party. And another guest at the party, actually the party was, this dinner was at his house, was Simon the leper. Now, why do you think they called him Simon the leper? It wasn't because he has leprosy, it's because he had leprosy. He wouldn't have been able to have been around the other people if he actively had leprosy. So Jesus must have healed him. And so here they're having this dinner at Simon the leper or the former leper's house along with the former dead guy, Lazarus. And and you know, if someone healed you from leprosy or somebody raised you from the dead, hey, why don't we have a, well, let's have a dinner party and then uh, I'll provide the food and then we'll be even. I don't know if that's what exactly was going on, but, but they're having this party. They're celebrating some of the really cool things that, that Jesus had been doing, this miracle that he, had, that he had performed in Lazarus' life. Can you imagine the conversation around dinner? Lazarus raised from the dead, Simon the leper. I don't know if you saw this past year, but si- uh, uh, Warren Buffett uh, on eBay auctioned off lunch with him. 19, someone paid $19 million to have lunch with Warren Buffett. What would you pay to have lunch, have a dinner with Jesus, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, and Simon the leper? Would that not be some interesting dinner conversation? Uh, And throw just Judas in just for fun uh, there at the the party. Notice what happens next, verse 3. And Mary took, therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary and Martha are ones, if you know their story, maybe you've heard their story, we find it in Luke 10. Mary and Martha are the ones that had Jesus at their home, and, and Martha was up helping, doing all the stuff, getting ready for, the, uh, for the, all the preparations for the meal. And Mary, if you remember, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha gets a little upset that Mary is just sitting there not helping. And if you remember, maybe you do that, that exchange, you can again see it in Luke 10. And so this is This is that same Mary and Martha, the sister to Lazarus. And Martha is doing what Martha does, and she's up preparing for the meal, and Mary's doing what Mary does, and she gets this very, very expensive ointment, and she anoints Jesus with it. Matthew and Mark add the detail that she takes an alabaster jar. Alabaster would have been a very, very expensive in its own right, uh, uh, container for the for the for the for the for the the ointment the oil and it says that she Mark includes the detail that she breaks the jar now don't think you know the seal was broken think she shatters it that's the Greek that the word that the the author uses is to shatter to smash she pours out how much did it say a pound of it some of you that use perfume. Think about how much you use, and then to imagine here she's using close to a pound of this ointment, anointing Jesus with it. Just, just it's extravagant. She's all in. It's, it, she's, she's willing to use it all. She breaks the jar, this expensive jar that it's in. In verse 2, it says that the guests were reclining at the table. Um, we've talked about this before, but just imagine a low table. Uh, probably in the shape of a U, and, and people would have reclined on one elbow, their feet behind them, sitting around the outside of the, of the table. And as people would come in, 
uh, to uh, in a situation like this, someone, the lowest servant in the house, would wash their feet. And we don't have, you know, we don't have to go into a lot of the detail, but in the sandal-wearing, hot, dirty days of the first century, it was important that, that that was taken care of prior to the meal. So that had already been, that would have already been taken care of when she comes to anoint Jesus. It was an extravagant, extravagant act of devotion, holding nothing back. This expensive jar with expensive oil, broken, poured out. And she wipes his feet, Scripture says, with her hair. The fragrance filling the house. Can you imagine? The, they, they talk about the sense of smell being the, one of the most powerful senses that we have at any point in the future, the rest of their lives. Anytime they would smell that smell, I'm sure they were transported back to this moment. Not everyone, though, was moved in the same way by the extravagant act of worship by Mary. Look at what Judas does. But Judas Iscariot, in verse 4, one of his disciples who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Incidentally, this is the first, uh, the first time that the words of Judas are recorded. In scripture. And what's he doing? Judas is doing what Judas does. And Judas, who would later betray Jesus, selling him out for 30 pieces of silver, he calls out Mary for this uh, extravagant act of worship, this extra extravagant sacrifice to anoint Jesus. Why didn't you sell it? Why didn't we sell this and give it to the poor? He didn't care about the poor, as, as John relates. Judas tells told them, and he tells all of us what it was worth. 300 denarii. A denarii was a Roman coin worth about a day's wages. So if you do the math on that, if you take a day out every, every seven for the Sabbath, that means that was about a year's worth of, uh, of, of, of salary, basically, that she pours out in this instant. In Berrien County, county we live in, Berrien County, the average wage in Berrien County for a single individual is $27,000 is the average. So even that, the average wage, imagine, imagine what it would be like to pour out $27,000 of whatever in an instant as an act of worship. It was extravagant by anyone's standard. This ointment probably had been in her family for generations. And yet, for her, it makes total sense to pour it all out on Jesus as an act of worship. Judas, interestingly, he understood the cost of everything, but at the same time, he understood the value of nothing. And he calls her out. He gets the other, other disciples, Scripture tells us in Matthew's record of this event, to rebuke her with him. Only John talks about Judas, but the other uh, disciples get in on the action, and they're giving her a hard time as well. And notice, again, this, it wasn't because he really thought that we should be serving the poor. That wasn't the motive. He didn't care about the poor. He, was the, he kept the money bag for the disciples and Jesus, and so he loved to skim money off the top. He's just acting pious. But Jesus stands up for her. Jesus says in verse 7, well, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus again comes, up, comes to Mary's defense. Leave her own. This is, this is about my burial, he says. Again, this was the beginning of the final week 
in Jesus' life. His final week. And, and he knew what the, the culminating moment of this week, what it would be. He knew that he would give his life. He knew that he would end up by Friday on a cross. Jesus had been telling his disciples in very, very clear, direct ways what was coming. They just weren't picking up the clue phone. The poor, he says, you're always, I have, always have the poor with you. And he wasn't saying that you shouldn't help the poor. That's not it. We see in any number of other places where Jesus talks about and, and heralds and, and holds up how important it is for us to, to serve and to be the, his hands and feet in our world and to serve the least of these. So we, we, that wasn't what he was talking about. What he was talking about is this is the final week. The, my burial is coming. My death is coming. And so you're going to ha- always have the poor with you. You can come back. You can serve them. But you need to focus on what is going on right here, right now, what's happening. You need to, to see it, to understand it. Look at these last verses. And when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to, Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now these were the days before social media, but the word was getting around. That, that, that at Simon's house, Simon the leper's house, that Lazarus is there, that Jesus is there. This is the guy that was raised from the dead. We got to go see it. And so people began to show up. They wanted to see Jesus, but they also wanted to see Lazarus. And people were, were, were putting their belief, their faith in Christ. And that was something the Jewish leadership hated. John records that the chief priest and scholars tell us probably that these were the Sadducees. They wanted Lazarus dead. You see, the Sadducees in that first century, if you remember your first century history, the Sadducees were the group that did not believe in the resurrection. So, so here is a guy that's been resurrected, and they have been teaching, these, these religious uh, leaders have been teaching that there's no resurrection, but yet here's Lazarus, who has literally been raised from the dead. And so, for any number of reasons, they want Lazarus, who, who, who is just making a mockery of their failed theology. They especially want him dead. So, what are the so-what moments of this story? What, what do we need to remember? What do we need to apply to our lives just quickly? Well, let's go back and see, see what Matthew had to say about what Mary does. And Matthew describes in verse 26 what Jesus says about it in verse 12, chapter 26, verse 12 of Matthew. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. We just need to remind ourselves that God has a plan. That God has had a plan from, again, very beginning in the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis, right after the original sin of Adam and Eve, that Jesus was a part of the plan, that Jesus would eventually give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity, our sins, their sins, sins past, present, and future. And so Jesus is submitting to the plan. He's marching toward the culmination of the plan His death wasn't an afterthought. His death wasn't an accident. The sinless Jesus had to suffer and had to die on a cross to pay the debt of our sins. So, why is Jesus anointing a key event in Holy Week? Because it foreshadows his impending death on a cross. Mary, whether she fully comprehended, fully understood or not, she is anointing him, preparing Jesus for burial. In their day when someone would die, they would 
they would they would prepare their bodies for burial. They didn't have they didn't uh, uh, do embalming like we do today or the Egyptians did. They would wrap uh, wrap the the body in oils and spices and things in order to mask the smell of decay as the body decayed in the tomb. And so she was preemptively doing what, as we read later, a week later, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would go get the body of Jesus, take it down off the cross, and prepare it for burial and put it into a tomb. And she's preemptively doing that. And Jesus is willingly submitting himself along this journey this week to what would again culminate in him being on a cross, horrifically carrying our sins on a cross. The second thing that I think is important for us to remember is that, that this event in Holy Week reminds us of God's plan for redemption. As we, as we think about what's going on, this was not, this was not Jesus getting, getting trapped in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and, and they, he didn't know what was going to happen. And so they, they come in the middle of the night and Judas betrays him and, and he didn't see that coming. And so they take him away and there's this trial and they, and they, they have influenced all the, all the powers that be. And so he ends up beaten and then on a cross. He's not on the cross. Oh, wow, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe that, that the plan got messed up. God's not in heaven wringing his hands. Uh, doing what we sometimes do when our plans get diverted and we act like, oh, well, that was, I, I didn't mean for that to happen all along. This is what I wanted to happen. This is not an example of God dropping back and punting. This was God's plan. Jesus dying on a cross for our sins was God's plan for redemption. It was prophesied about hundreds of years before it happens. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah talks about Jesus bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows and being smitten by God. The, the, the psalmist writes, again, hundreds of years before the event, it's like he's sitting at the foot of the cross and, and writing uh, and just as a reporter would write about what's happening with Jesus on the cross. Psalm 21, 22, again, written hundreds of years before. Read it for yourself. And see, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's again like a, a news report of Jesus on the cross. These prophecies reminding us all of this is part of the plan. Over and over, three times in each of the three gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, on three different occasions in each of them, Jesus says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be put in a grave, and, and I'll raise three days later. In Matthew 16, verse 21. Just to give you one example. From the time Jesus began to show his disciples, from this time he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the, on the third day be raised. Jesus has told them, this is what's going to happen. It was part of the plan for our redemption. That's huge. We need to understand what's going on here. And then let's just talk, that's, if that's a 30,000 foot level, let's just talk for a second. What do we have to learn that, that can, that today, that, that this week can impact our lives, something that we need to remember, that we can apply right now? Mary, she's anointing Jesus with this extravagant, as we've called it, this extravagant act of worship. Judas is there and he's critical of what, 
what she's doing. He influences the other disciples. They're also critical. And it just simply reminds us as we see this story of the reality that in this broken world, that opposition will consistently be a part of the reality of what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus. What does Jesus' anointing teach us? That opposition will at times be a part of what it means to follow Christ. And if we have no opposition as we follow Christ, then we might need to go back and reevaluate, am I really living all in as a follower of Jesus? I was kind of reflecting this week, and I can honestly say in my 30-plus years of full-time ministry that at each point from youth pastor days to senior pastor days, all the, all the, the key the key points where there was a fork in the road and, and you need to do this and just feeling like this is what God wanted to do here or you can take the easy path. Every time that it was, that, 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 that I knew that it was, this is a big deal, this really matters. Every time there was opposition that went along with taking that path. As I look back, and I know that you have experienced that as well. It's a natural part of doing the right thing. We have an enemy in this world, and he would love to destroy the plans, God's plans. And if we make right decisions, as we make those difficult decisions to move the vision, move the mission, move the plan, both as a church and as individual followers of Jesus, there will be times as we honor Christ that there will be opposition. Go back to the story. You hear from the lips of Judas when, when Mary is uh, in this extravagant act of worship, you see Judas uh, making her look bad in front of the other disciples. Why didn't we sell that for and give, it, give the money to the poor? Again, knowing that he didn't really care about the f- poor. But what we see is that, that, that they were influenced. The other disciples were influenced by the words of Judas. And it's a sad commentary to see that they were manipulated by him. They would know. They would, he, they would realize who he really was later. When he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, they would understand what he did. But in this moment, they allow his poison to infect them. And it's a reminder for all of us that we need to be careful what we allow to shape our faith. What we allow to shape our Christianity. So what does Jesus' anointing here have to teach us? That we need to be careful what we allow to shape our Christianity. What we allow to shape, again, our faith. So, will, will, we, will, we, will we let our culture shape our faith? Will we, will we say, well, I know what Scripture says. I know what, 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 what the, the faith used to say. But things have changed. Times have changed. And so, this is right. This is true. Will we allow culture to, to push us into changing what we believe? That, yes, God's Word says this, but. Will we allow our culture to, to move us to to say, as it says, well, you know, there are some, certain things that are right for you that are not necessarily right for me. There are certain things that are wrong for you that are not necessarily wrong for me. And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Will we allow that to filter into the church? What will, what will we allow to influence our faith, to influence our Christianity? we got to be careful. And then one final lesson. What does Jesus' anointing have to teach us? That Jesus deserves our extravagant worship. I invite our worship team to come back up.
Today we have the privilege, the opportunity, the honor. We know that Christ is here with us. Any place that two or three are gathered in his name, he's here. He is with us today. And we have the privilege of worshiping him. Judas and the other disciples saw what Mary was doing, and they saw it as an extravagant waste. But Jesus saw it differently. He saw it as a beautiful act of worship. And we need to see what she did as different. And understand that, that, that extravagant worship, that giving it all, all of ourselves in worship, that that should be the norm. That should be who we are. And so do we give, us, give Christ our best? Are we all in in our worship of Jesus? Are we all in when it comes to worshiping him with our time, as we worship him with our treasure, as we worship him with our talents, are we willing to be extravagant in the worship that we give? As we consider that he gave everything for us, are we willing to, to worship him back in that way? We have the privilege today as we conclude to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, of what Christ would do for us on the cross. In the room, if you're here in the room, we have uh, two tables set up. And we've got the, uh, the bread and the cup in little containers. And you can tear the top off and you find the bread and tear the next piece off and you find the cup. And so we just invite you during this next time of worship. We've got a couple songs that we're going to sing that we just have an extended time where you just have an opportunity. And we don't have to create a big line necessarily. But just as you see opportunity, just come and you can gather all around the table. And just spend a few minutes and kneel and just give Jesus some extravagant worship. As you just, just confess things or just tell him how thankful you are, how grateful you are for what he's done for you. As you worship him, as you pour your heart out to him in extravagant ways. Let me read this passage and then we'll worship and give you a chance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and whenever he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so, Father, as we conclude, as we move into a time of worship, I pray that you would help us not to be distracted by those around us, God. But, God, that you would let these words help us to articulate our worship to you. That you would just call to our memory the events of this night and, like Mary, help us to, in an extravagant way, just pour ourselves out in worship of Jesus to remember the bread that was given, that was nailed to a, to a cross that represents the body of Christ, the cup that represents the blood of Jesus shed. As we understand, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, there is no forgiveness of sin. And God, we celebrate the relationship that we have with you because of Christ on the cross, the forgiveness that we have because of Jesus. And so now we transition into like Mary to follow her in, a, in this time of extravagant worship. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name.